Uh, hello again. Really, really glad to be back with you on the second evening here. Um, and uh, I wanted to open up our time together by uh, asking if there was anybody here that um, would like to share what God was doing with you last night. Now you say, why do you do that? The reason we do that is because your testimony is a witness to God's grace and it glorifies God. That's the reason we do that. It has nothing to do with me. In fact, as we were worshiping, I was thinking, uh, as we were sort of entering into the presence of, of the Lord, I was thinking, gosh, you know, what a privilege and what an honor it is to stand up on a stage and talk about this one we're singing to. You know, incredible. And I almost felt like unworthy, you know, kind of thing. I, I don't know if I can do this. You know, this is like uh, speaking for this one is uh, such an honor and a privilege. And that's what you do when you say, God did this. So, uh, Danny, if you have a microphone, first of all, is there anybody? There may not be anybody that wants to, to, to talk. If you are, no. Okay, no preaching allowed. Anyone? I always take this opportunity. There's someone. Okay, good. Um, last night when... No, I don't want to stand up. Um, last night when... I think it was Danny mentioned that we were standing... Or you may have said the same thing, Barry, about um, knowing that God loves us, but we are standing at the threshold or at the portico. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And not... Um, entering in when he wants to have a cup of tea with us and that has been kind of my my lifelong story is I've been at the door at the and I didn't really think about it being that way with God but I felt it with my family um, all my life up until mm. about a week ago and um, I just see how God has really um, kind of removed me from that victim role of being without a voice and um, he's just I'm I'm able to um, forgive forgive my family and love and be loved and have a voice at the same time and that's what I was it was confirmed to me last night sweet thank you yeah thank you praise the Lord Feel like Phil Donahue. Who's you know, that? <laughs> He's not from Kentucky, but yeah. uh, last night uh, Barry asked if anybody had a right hip that was bothering him, and I had this hip replaced a year ago, July, and it's been bothering me. Barry prayed for me, and I felt it didn't wake me up at all at night. Hmm. It's less than less than one. Okay, good. Good. Thank Praise you, God. Lord. Yeah. Amen. And I thought I was the special one that he called out that right hip just for me. <laughs> <laughs> but it did make me feel special that, you know, that, that God would notice what we have. It's like the last 18 months I've been having back and, and the hip problems. So I thank God for that. But thanks, Dale. We're, we're brother and sister. <laughs> and the other thing was when you said, at the beginning, there were people up front, and then you said, 
you were talking about how you just learn to accept it and not go on and I thought well I've been crying out for this for a long time mm. I've learned to accept it so then I moved up because you reminded me that I had just put myself in a place that I didn't need to stay <laughs> praise God Anyone else? Great. Thanks, Danny. Uh, so if, for those of you, how many were not here last night? If you just show by hand that you were not here. Okay, quite a few of you. Just quickly, uh, this is kind of where we've been. I've been talking about uh, a heart of power. Um, and uh, we saw last night that many in, uh, people in who are followers of Jesus have what I was calling a love deficit. And when there's not the love of God in terms of an a, a ongoing experience in your life, there's really nothing to give away. And if you try to give away when you have a, a deficit, it ends badly and it ends in burnout and it ends in things that you wouldn't like. And so we talked a little bit about that last night, a lot about it. We need that ongoing experience. We also said last night that God is love. So this is beyond power encounter. This is a personal thing that God can't help but love. If you feel unloved, it is a feeling that is false uh, in the sense that uh, God is loving you whether you know he is or not because God is love. It's pouring out of him all the time. The Trinitarian love of God is on you, really, whether you like it or not, because that's who God is. And that's how he operates. That's what he does. And something that happens wherever I go, let me just mention this as a sidebar to that, something that happens wherever I go and when I, when I give this message, uh, one of the things that happens is I see people begging for God's love. I see people with that look on their face like, why not me, you know, why can't I have this? I just want to point out that, and I, and I saw it here last night, and, and I've seen it in myself, and it's, it's, so it's something we all maybe deal with, but one of the things I, I, I want to let you remind you of is that you don't plead for an inheritance. Think of yourself in the lawyer's office and your wealthy benefactor has just passed away and left you a million dollars. You don't go up to the lawyer, fall on your knees and say, please give me my inheritance. Please. No, what you do is you swagger in there and you say, give me my inheritance. Why? Well, it's not because you're cool. Somebody thought enough of you to give it. You didn't do anything to earn it. It's on you. And so that is the love of God. I almost said you have no right to refuse it, but that wouldn't be exactly right, would it? What you must do is acknowledge it, because it's true. So no begging, please. It's an inheritance. Here's something else. It's not simply an experience you have at a meeting. 
some people get confused about this, and that's why they're standing up in the front row saying, why not me? And what you're really saying is, why am I not experiencing what that person over there is experiencing? They look like they're melting down or something. They're in tears, and they're just having that hot oil we talked about last night poured all over them, and why not me? God just doesn't like you is what it's about. No. And I want you to know that God's love has to be experienced. It's not always a party. You cannot party all the time. You will die. God's love is a lifestyle. And you have to have your antenna on. Once you've acknowledged the fact that God is love and he can't help but love and he's loving you right now, whatever you're feeling, once you accept that, you're good. Then you can go into life and have your antenna on and say, where, how are you showing me your love? I was uh, in our old office at uh, a Catholic high school that we rented when we first started the vineyard in northern Kentucky. And, um, I, you know, as most pastors, I was wondering, like, you know, about a bunch of things. And uh, wonder if the church was going to live and all that stuff, you know, or live or die or whatever, you know. And so I'm up in, we had this three-story building that we rented there. And um, I was up in the top floor, and it was one of those days where, you know, it's like February, it was just, uh, the sun was really brightly shining, but it was really cold outside. You know the kind of day I'm talking about? So they had all these, ca- these old casement windows in, in the little cell that I was in, because it used to be a Catholic monastery type of a thing, you know, it was a little room cell. And I was sitting there and I was praying and I was, you know, begging for God's love or something like that, you know, and, and uh, I felt the warmth of the sun coming through that casement window. And it sort of warmed my bones a little bit on that cold day. And then the Lord spoke to me. He said, this is for you, Barry. Of course, it was for a lot of people, but he wanted me to know that was for me. Suddenly I realized, as I have many times in nature, that God's love can be communicated in hundreds of different ways. You have to have your ears on. You have to have your antenna up. So don't go out of this meeting saying, well, I didn't get that. Go out of this meeting, meeting with, the, with the premise, with the, with the bedrock that God loves you. He's on it. And then you'll find yourself yourself open to hundreds of different ways he communicates that like when you hold your newborn grandbaby or something like that you you know that that whole thing you're experiencing there is deep calling to deep it's that thing that God's put in you when he created you in his image it's like it's where you connect with him and he uses tons of different ways in our lives to communicate that and resonate with that in your heart keep your ears open Keep your senses. And then there, of course, are meetings like this. I'm not minimizing what God does at these meetings. He does a lot. He makes us aware. He releases us in ways that maybe we didn't expect before. So um, this is always beyond power encounter. And what keeps Christ followers from our inheritance is what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about barriers. We're going to talk about barriers to God's love. The reason people do not live in this love, they don't think to keep their antenna up. They don't have experiences like 
feeling the, the warmth and the incredible power of, of the love of God. There are reasons for that. And we're going to talk about those. And I uh, hesitate to use the phrase blowing up tonight because of what's happening in Paris, but I want to blow up those barriers. So let's, can we pray? Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we know you're here. We've already experienced your mercy, your presence, your total grandeur. And I pray right now, Lord, that um, you'd push down barriers in the hearts of people that are in this room, including mine. And I ask that you would like that sunshine came through that old casement window. I pray that your sunshine would break in uh, to, to folks this evening. Thanks, Lord. Amen. Well, the first barrier to experiencing God's love is the old saw perfectionism. And I know that a lot of people think they know what that is. And as we get into it, I want to read a story from a young man that he wrote in his journal and ended up in a book. His name is James Bryan Smith. And uh, it's a rather long reading, so, you know, fasten your seatbelts, but it'll be worth it. Here's James writing. One morning, long after becoming a Christian, I woke up to the realization that I was avoiding God. I had been trying so very hard for, so very, for, for a very long time to be the kind of person that I thought God wanted me to be. But I failed over and over to be that person. I was sure that God was ashamed of me, of my weaknesses, my cowardice, and my pride. I knew that I was ashamed of myself. I could barely stand to look in the mirror. The person I saw was the reflection there was flawed, imperfect, fallen short of God's expectations and my own. I felt I deserved judgment. So I stayed away from uh, God and I stayed away from solitude and prayer. Instead, I kept myself busy, hoping to overcome my feeling of failure through good works. But on this day, I decided to face God again. I knelt down and I confessed all my sins and weaknesses and I began I begged God to remove my flaws, and I told God I would do better, I would try harder, and that I was sorry for having failed so many times. I'd done this before, of course. And even though I was making a thorough and heartfelt confession, I still felt alienated from God. The silence was deafening. Let me just stop there. Does anybody see themselves? Don't raise your hand. When I read this, there were tears in my eyes. It takes a lot to get tears in my eyes. Then suddenly, the, I, I said to God, I said, I'm so sorry in my nervousness. I, I found myself chattering away. Please forgive me. I, I, I know I can do better. Oh, God, help me. Then suddenly, the Spirit spoke within me. Be quiet, Jim, and close your eyes. When I closed my eyes, I saw a lush green field with a, with a wind blowing through high grass. And Jesus was standing off in the distance, and he began to walk toward me. As he got closer, I began pleading once again, I'm sorry, please forgive me, Jesus. I know I can do better. Jesus never said a word in response. He just kept walking toward me, looking me straight in the eye. When he got near me, he lifted me up from the ground and he hugged me for the next five minutes I was hugged by God no words were spoken 
but a warmth and a love and an acceptance penetrated my lonely, restless soul. My guess is there are a lot of people in this room that can relate to this young man's struggle, especially if you're serious about trying to follow Jesus. If you're unserious about it, eh, not a big deal. But if you're serious, as I believe you are, you wouldn't be here. You've probably gone through something similar. And so the only dynamite that will break through this barrier of perfectionism is 200-proof grace. It has to be 200-proof. It's the only one. Here's what somebody said. Grace is the face that love wears when it meets imperfection, sin, and brokenness. In other words, grace is the face that love wears when it meets you and me. That's what grace is. Put it another way, uh, in my theology, Prof was really instrumental in this. He said, no, there's two ways you can approach God. And it's two, let's just think about it as two different windows. There is, first of all, there's the law window. You can approach God through the law window. It's like, you know, if you do well, God can accept you. If you blow it, the window's slammed in your face. Paul said, eh, that's not going to work. You can't approach God that way. You approach God that way, you're going to fail. Here's what it says, message translation. I like the message in this case. Anyone who tries to live by his own effort, independent of God, is doomed to failure. Scripture backs this up. Utterly cursed is every person who fails to carry out every detail within the book of the law. The obvious impossibility of carrying out such a moral program should make it plain that no one can sustain a relationship with God that way. Perfectionism, trying to approach God through the law window. What it does, if you do it long enough, it'll alienate you from God. Here's a couple things that can happen if you're a perfectionist. You give up. You quit. Just quit trying. You lower the standard. You know what I'm saying? You lower the standard. Well, that, that way, oh, my, my mistakes aren't really sin. And so you, you create a new standard just so you can live with yourself. Anybody try that one? That can happen as well. Or you get angry. You know, uh, there are, uh, there's a man named Denise D'Souza who says that there are no atheists, they're just wounded theists. And I think he's absolutely correct in that. So there's a couple of things that can happen. Maybe some of that has happened to you and you know that's true. That means you're trying to approach God in, an un, in a way that you, can't, you can never do it. You can't approach God and say, hey, I measure up, you've got to let me in. It's just not the right God if you can make that happen. And you're experiencing what James Smith was experiencing. The other alternative is, of course, the grace window. It's the only way to do it. It's the only way humans can have a relationship with God. Don't even try another way. There's no other way. This is God we're talking about. The only way you can approach him is through grace. You know the old definition, unmerited favor? It's the first thing you learn when you come into a Protestant church if they are preaching the gospel is about grace. There's a reason for that. It is unmerited favor. Paul describes the reality like this. By entering through faith into what God always wanted to do for us, uh, set us right with him and make us fit 
for him, we have it all together with God because of our Master Jesus. That's what we're singing about this evening. And that's not all. We throw open our doors to God and discover at the same moment that He has already thrown open His door to us. We find ourselves standing there like we always hoped we might stand, out in wide open spaces of God's grace and glory, standing tall and shouting our praise. So, question. Real question, not rhetorical. Which window do you think you approach God in through? Mark it. Think about it. Think about yourself. How do you approach God? Through the law window? Through the grace window? Sometimes through the law window. Sometimes through the grace window. What about you? Now, if you are approaching God through the law window, let me give you some things that probably would mark your life. First of all, there usually is a free-floating anxiety and a guilt. What I mean by free-floating is you shouldn't feel guilty about something you just are. So, you always have those little butterflies in your stomach like, I don't think I'm doing that well, (laughs) kind of thing. And you can't really nail it to something. You can't put it on something. It's free-floating anxiety. That means you're probably approaching God through the law window. Anger. Martin Luther said when he was trying to follow God through the law window, he said that he ended up hating God because he could never be pleased. Can't do it without some reaction in yourself. You know, uh, I, I felt last night that there was a person who was suffering with uncontrollable anger at times. And God wanted to, to reach out and touch that person in, in, in graceful ways. Coldness toward and even avoidance of God. We read that in James Smith's testimony in his journal. He didn't want to be around God. It's like a person that you owe money to, you know. You don't know about that? You avoid that person. You owe money to that person. You know, you go in the other room when you see him walk down the hall. Judgmentalism. Here's what perfectionists do, and here's what people that approach God through the law window do. They have a, a, impossible demands on themselves, and they make life miserable for everybody else. Anybody seeing themselves? You want to quit. Every other day, you want to quit. Concluding that a relationship with God is probably just not for you. Because this God, as Luther said, just can't be pleased. Again, through which window are you trying to approach God? God's love is, is not dependent on your performance. He just loves us because God is love. We talked about it last night. Um, you, you can't avoid it in the New Testament. There it is. God can't love you any more or less than he does right now. Because that's who he is. And he doesn't change. So if he loved you yesterday when you were doing really good, he's going to love you tomorrow when you blow it. Why don't we just start there? Why don't we just start there? 
He said, oh, I can't start there. Then I can, you know, it's like license. Then I'll be able to do anything I want. We'll get to that. It's not. It's just the opposite, in fact, of that. It's the way to, the true holiness is the love of God. The basis of the way to true holiness is the grace of God. If you don't understand the grace of God, what you're basically doing is you're trying to obey out of guilt. That is an inferior motive to obey God from. God's after obedience from love. I guess fear and guilt is better than no obedience, but it's certainly not what God's calling you to. If you really want to be holy, you've got to understand grace and that you're already accepted. That's, that's your foundation. And apart from it, yeah, it doesn't work. Do you see this? God's love is poured out on us while we're thumbing our noses at him. Listen to this, and this is flawless logic, again from Paul and again from the message. If you hate the message, sorry. Um, but God shows his great love for us in this way. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. I mean, just think of that. You were going like this to God, and he was pouring out his blood on the cross, and you're flipping him the bird. I apologize again. I just want to make it stark. While you were in rebellion against God, He was pouring out His blood for you. Think of it. While we were God's enemies, He made friends with us through the death of His Son. Surely, now, that we're friends... He'll save us through His Son's life. Do you see the logic here? If, when we were enemies, God poured out His blood for us, how much more, now that we're buddies, will He bless us and love us? Oh, man, put that one on your fridge. Put it everywhere. Think of it on your bad days. Look, look at it this way. Let's say um, Danny gives you a sugary donut every morning. Are you with me? Danny, this guy, gives you a sugary donut every morning and smiles. He's so sweet, and you slap his face. I try to get Danny to do this demonstration with me on stage, but he refused. All right, you slap his face, but... Danny's sugary love continues to come every morning. He keeps, here's a donut. You know, finally you fall for it and you make friends with Danny. And he's your friend. Now what are you expecting? Well, you're expecting Starbucks with your sugary donut and maybe a massage. According to Paul's logic, are you with me here? So if when you were Danny's enemy, he gave you a sugary donut. How much more will he give you a Starbucks when you're his friend? Okay, I can tell this is really going over well with you. I just want to show you that that is Paul's logic here. And it's, it's unassailable. It's like, okay, this has to make sense. So God's love is constant. You know what? His love doesn't change before or after. You know what changes? Our ability to receive it. 
Because when you're rebelling against God, it's really hard to receive His love. And once you say yes, how much more can He do for you now? Now that you're open, now that your antenna is up, now that you're saying yes to God, what's going to happen now? This is the logic of grace. If you don't grasp this, and if I don't grasp it, I just, I'm not going to go very far in the authentic Christian life. Anybody want to raise your hand and say your life is a contradiction? Because mine is. God loves me. I didn't do a thing to deserve it. In fact, I did just the opposite. Christ died for me. Why? What did I do? Nothing. This is the sort of love that will change your life. And when you get this, you're going to change the lives of others. And when you get this, you're going to lose it, and you're going to have to get it again. And it's going to happen again and again, because this makes no sense to us. And that's why we keep harping on these seemingly simple topics, because they're the most life-changing topics that we can talk about together. We have to continue to remind ourselves of who we are, or we're never going to go anywhere in terms of getting this good news out around the world. That's why we're having this conference. I know, you thought it was about you. Essentially, it's about God. It's about what God wants to do in the world. This is one of the big reasons that he redeemed us so we could join him in recreating the whole place. Of course, he has to do it through us. It's not you doing it. That's the call of God on you. It's the call of God on me. We have to get the grace and love part right. It's for mission. So my jerkiness does not exclude me. In fact, because I'm not perfect, God's grace becomes blazing. The worse I am, remember what Paul said, Look at me, the worst of all sinners, but God's made me an example. See the contrast? And so, when God saves us from our wretchedness, He becomes more glorified in that salvation. And the whole universe is watching, Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians. All those archangels and the enemies of God are up there in the heavenly realms going, I can't believe what's happening. Look at those guys! Look what God's doing. He's just vindicated his name for creating those jerks. Look at him. God is going to win. God is going to be vindicated, no matter what your atheist friend says about him. No matter how many books Richard Dawkins writes, God's going to be vindicated even when it looks like things are really dark through Christ. So you need undiluted, 200-proof grace. That'll blow up the barrier of perfectionism. Are we only on the second barrier? 
daddy issues. Rick Evans does a whole seminar about this. I think you guys are going to have him next year or something. He does a whole seminar on this. I can't go into the detail Rick goes into, but I will say daddy issues are a huge reason people don't receive the love of God. I think most people who have who have ever taken a psychology course understand that very often that kids, the way they're treated by their parents, they, they transfer that to, to what they think about God because your parents are God when you're a little kid. Right? That, that's very, very oversimplified, but that's basically the dynamic that we're looking when we talk about daddy issues as being a barrier to the love of God. It's because however your parents treated you, however you came up with the authority figures in your life is going to affect the way you look at God either consciously or unconsciously. And a lot of it's unconsciously. You may not even know you have this issue. It doesn't take much. But God wants something else. i got to tell the story that I told last time I was here. And if you're like anybody else I've ever spoken to, you've forgotten it. But I just think it's a great picture of what God really wants for you. I was four or five. It was winter. Snowy. And my father drove a Ford tractor around our 200 acres. And he would let me drive with him. When it was cold, he would zip me up into his army jacket. We have a picture. It looks like he's a two-headed person. There's an old head and there's a young head. The young head's me. I can't tell you how invincible I felt. I can still remember it, how invincible I felt there was all this cold around me. All these elements were blowing against me. And there I am in my dad's army jacket, and I was safe. It was the best feeling. I can even remember the cologne he wore. It was Old Spice. Which, I don't know why I ever liked it. You know what? That's what God wants for you. That's the kind of security he wants you to have in his love. How many remember that story? Ha <laughs> ha! All right, thanks for remembering. I don't have a better, better illustration of what God actually wants for us. Now, my dad wasn't perfect. He had trouble expressing his love. My brother said he had wolf eyes. You know what I'm saying? He could just look at you and you'd go, <laughs> you know. It's, it, it's like he was a strong, silent type. My dad wasn't perfect. And, it, you know... I was never abused uh, officially kind of thing, but you know what? There are people in this room that were. Or you didn't have a dad. Or you never knew your dad. And so this is a continuum, isn't it, of different ways that people can mess up parenting. And my dad was no exception. He messed up. And there was a long time where I felt alienated from my father. Alienated from him. Because of those things, my heart was so tender, so was yours. And your young heart got these impressions from your parents and the authority figures in your life. And it formed you into who you are. It becomes a barrier to receiving God's love the first thing to do to remedy the barrier is to pull the veil back on it and look at it for what it is. And that's what I've been doing for most of 
the adult portion of my life, and God has really been healing me and still is. I have a friend who feuded with his dad, and he hated his dad until he was almost 50 years of age. And I noticed this because, you know, my friend was a Christian. In fact, he worked for me as a pastor. And every time we prayed, he would never pray to the Father. He'd just pray to Jesus. And so I pointed out to him, I said, you know what, Rob? I said, every time we pray, I never hear you talk to the Father. You know, you and your dad, that wasn't very good, was it? This guy was six foot six, about 250, and he started to, to, to weep. Daddy issues. They're real. They're formidable. And it's a barrier that God wants to blow up. Will he blow it all up tonight in your life? I don't know. But I do know that you, as I am doing, can work through with God maybe unpacking some stuff with a Christian counselor that will take this barrier away. And we just need to know about it. We need to acknowledge it. Eddie Peoric used to do a seminar uh, about this, and I was at one of his sessions with a friend. Actually, it wasn't a friend. It was way back in 1988. I was, took somebody out to Los Angeles to hear Eddie do this father thing, this... Uh, the father's heart kind of a kind of a thing and um, he my friend had never been in a vineyard he'd never really seen how vineyards work and how we do ministry and and those kinds of things he was a neophyte he didn't know much about it and so Eddie was talking about the very issues we're talking about right now and he said he said okay he said some of you before you get into the throne room where the father is you're gonna have to stop in the bathroom what's he talking about Stop in the bathroom. And so my friend and I are sitting. We, he, he didn't want to sit in the front row. We're sitting in the back row. Big workshop, about 200 people. And um, Peoric sits his Diet Coke down on the stand. And he says, come, Holy Spirit. And all heaven broke loose in the room. I mean, there were people writhing. There were people screaming. There were people vomiting. It was all over. And I looked into my friend's eyes, and he was like, I said, well, I said, don't worry about it. This happens all the time. I said, it's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. What was happening? Daddy issues. You see, so it's a real thing. Don't run from it. Run to the real father. And God will remove this barrier. All this means refocusing on the fact that God the father is not like your father. Even if your father was great. God the Father is God the Father. And that means he's perfect, unlike our dads. And we have to separate the two in our brains so we can come as close as possible. Because don't forget, God the Father is your dad's father too. And if your dad was bad to you, probably it was because he wasn't properly loved. His dad was bad to him. And it's passed on generationally. You don't know how to behave, so you behave like your father, even if it was bad. Some people in this room are suffering because of that. God wants to reach into your heart, maybe tonight, and begin or continue that healing process that you're going through 
so you can get his love in ways that maybe you never anticipate could happen. It's a big barrier. It's a big deal. Daddy issues. So, you know, God tried to explain what he's like as a father in that one parable. Does anybody know what parable I'm talking about? The parable of the forgiving father? Give it another try. The... All right, just went ahead to see if you guys were still there. You know, yeah, you, you, you've probably read the story. It's, it's a story It's really riveting. It's the most famous story Jesus ever told. Do you know that? He, it, all over the world, when you talk about the prodigal son, people know what it is, even if they're not Christians. They know what it is in Tokyo. They know what it is in Bangladesh. Everywhere you go, people know this story. And the reason they know the story is because deep in the human heart is a desire to be reconciled with your father. Not just your earthly father, but the father. And that's why this parable resonates. If you've never heard it before, of course, it's a story about this brat kid who asks for his inheritance early. And in that culture, when you ask for your inheritance early, um, it's like you're saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. In the Middle Eastern culture, in the ancient world. And so... Uh, there were two boys in the house, and this one goes, and his dad unbelievably gives him everything. And he goes in to a far country, and he parties, and he buys friends, because they all leave him in the end. He was buying his friends. They all leave him in the end, and he ends up as a Jewish boy feeding pigs and wanting to eat pig food. That is descending to the cellar. So that's the, in broad outline what the story was. And then the, the, the kid decides, I want to go back. Even my father's servants have it better than I do. And so he goes back, and on the way, Jesus paints the picture of what the father's like. Can I read this to you? When he was still a long way off, this brat, his father saw him, his heart pounding, he ran out, embraced him, and kissed him. Do you, know, do you want to know anything about God? He embraced him, he kissed him. The son started his speech, Father, I've sinned against God, and I've I, he had this all planned out, this speech, I've, I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son. I think he was going to go on, but his father wasn't listening. He was calling his servants, quick, bring a set of clothes, dress him, put a family ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, and then get a grain-fed heifer and roast it. We're going to feast. We're going to have a wonderful time. My son's here, given up dead and now alive. Given up for lost and now found. And they began to have a wonderful time. What's God like? This is him. Running out to meet you. Just make any move like you're going to come towards me. That's what God's saying. Just even, you know, wink. Scholars point out this guy must have been watching at the window. Daily. That makes sense to me. You know, I don't think it was an accident. He said, oh, there's my son. I think I'll run out and meet him. No, he's probably watching. Watching at the window. 
for this boy to come, this boy that was actually probably naked, maybe a loincloth. That's all he had left. So this father, what does he do? He covers his shame with this robe, this royal robe. He gives him his MasterCard gold card. That's what the ring is. Right? Because in the ancient world, right, they had, to, they had signet rings and they would mark their seal on it. And that, that was your MasterCard gold card. So he gave him all his credit back. He gave him all his inheritance back. And then he put sandals on his feet. One of the marks of uh, poverty-stricken people is no shoes. You've been in the third world. Your church has been in Brazil. You know that, right? There, people don't have shoes. You can tell how a country's doing by if their kids have shoes or not. Just go in and look and see if the kids have shoes. If they have no shoes, the country's doing badly. And so he restored all of his fortunes. There's lots of other stuff we could say about what happened, but what I want to really get across to you, if you want to know what God's like, this is it. This is what God's like when it comes to his love for you. Jesus could have said a lot of things, couldn't he? All of us know there's two sons in this story. There's one that was lost in the far country. There's one was lost living right at home. All right, so think of it this way. This is one way to think of it. Think of the one lost in the far country as me because I was always a rebellious sinner. Then think about the one that was living at home as you who've been in church all your life. Think of it that way. Right? You don't want a guy like me to come in. I mean, I've been a rat. I've done everything bad in the world, and you have been faithful. You've stayed there in your father's house. You've served your head off, and you've been loyal to him. And now you're going to take this, this kid back? Really? And put him on an equal level with me? Are you getting the feel for this? So this is the older guy, and this is the way Peterson puts it in the message. All this time, his older son was out in the field, and when the day's work was done, he came in, and as he approached the house, he heard music and dancing. It's this party. Crawling over to one of the houseboys, he said, what's going on? He told him, your brother's come home. He must have gone red right there, right? You know he didn't like him. Your brother's come home. Your father has ordered a feast, barbecued beef. I would rather had ribs. Because, that wouldn't be very Jewish, would it? Okay. Uh, be, because he was home safe and sound, and, and uh, uh, the older brother stalked off in angry in a sulk, and he refused to join it, and his father came in and tried to talk to him, but he wouldn't listen. The son said, How many years I've stayed here serving you, never giving you one moment of grief. Nobody's going to believe that, are they? He's probably, you know, talks like a politician. But you've, have you ever thrown a party for me and my friends? Then this son of yours who's thrown away your money on whores, how does he know? Shows up and you go out and you give him a feast. And his father said, son, you don't understand. You're with me all the time. Everything I have is yours. Did you catch that, church folks? You're living right in the house. 
I know you've been good all your life. Good. You're living right in the house. You see, I would have come to Christ a lot sooner had not the church sent the older brother out to meet me. Did you hear what I said? I would have come to Christ a lot sooner had not the church sent the older brother out to meet me. You need to jump through these ten hoops. You need to do this. You've got to get your life straight before you come here. You can't, you can't come in here dressed like that. You've got to get a haircut. But I went to the vineyard in Los Angeles, and everybody there was like me. Everybody there was accepting me for who I was. Nobody was even dressed up. You see, when I grew up, everybody wore suits and ties to church. That became an alienating factor for me. Now, it may not be, it may not, it may not, it shouldn't probably be that way, but it was for me. But what if the church decided to send the father out to these prodigals? You know what? I've got a lot of confidence. That's what you guys are doing. But it's something we can never forget. I had people leave our church in Florence, Kentucky because we let people with mohawks in. This was a long time ago. Multicolored mohawks, they were great. And, and I mean, yeah, it's a long time ago. I know it sounds like out of touch now, but, but that, that's what was happening in those days, you know. The church folk that were in our church, they couldn't handle that. They didn't want that among them. They didn't want the people who smelled bad to come either. we got a guy right now who runs everybody out of the first row. I'm not kidding. His name's Ed. Smells like he hadn't had a bath in a year. That's what we need to do. That's what the church needs to do, and we, we touched on it before, this love that we need to receive. Uh, we need to turn it around and give it to other people. I would have come to Christ a lot sooner had I met the Father sooner. You know, God didn't just send us to tell stories about his love. Talk can be cheap. Look what Jesus did. I mean, that's really what to look at. I mean, it's a lot, a lot of warm, fuzzy stories in the last couple of days. And, you know, kind of stuff that, oh, that's nice. But it's more than that, isn't it? I mean, it's God dying. Horrible death on a cross. It's like God said, this is what love is. It's not making you feel good. It's about doing something. Love is a, a verb, and sometimes it's really painful. It's sacrificial. It's not just a feel-good thing. Now, it does feel good when you're accepted. That's part of the story. But sometimes you're going to be called to give away love uh, that you've received from the Lord, and it's going to hurt. But that's why you can do it. You're secure enough to do something like wash somebody's feet as Jesus did right before he was crucified. You're secure enough to do jobs that are maybe you think beneath you because you've received the love of God 
and now you can give it away. Think of the cross when you think about giving the love of God away. You're going to do things in and through the church that nobody is ever going to recognize or see. Ever. It's sacrificial love. How can you do that? You have to be able to stand in the waves of God's love whenever you can and however you can. You have to have your antenna up. You have to believe that God loves you beyond the shadow of a doubt. And you have to live there or you're not going to be able to do the job. And that's a fact. especially in North America, we need to hear this message. Love is a sacrifice that you may give your life for. And that's so beyond our radar here. That's what it is in the two-thirds world all over the place. People are dying, starving, and others are loving them. So it says... In the famous verse, in all the end zones, God so loved the world, he gave his son. We talked about it last night. That is sacrificial love. I learned about it very early in my Christian life, and I'm just starting to understand it. I was helping pass out communion. Probably told this story last time, too. I can't stop telling the story everywhere I go. I was in the vineyard early days, and I was passing out communion with another guy. And... Um, in those days, about 80 people gathered for communion, usually before the service, and it was like designated days. And so, we, you know, I had just recently gotten a promotion. I, I started setting up chairs. That was my first job at the vineyard, setting up chairs, because we had to set them up and take them down where we were meeting. And so um, I, I got promoted to serving communion. And um, myself and my, and my friend were, were serving communion. And in those days, we had um, uh, the, the little fish food stuff on the plate, you know, always tasted like fish food to me. You say, what are you doing eating fish food? I was a kid. I ate fish food. Did you ever eat turtle food? Nobody did? Okay, so I was, I was passing out this fish food. I had a little bit ADD up here, sorry. Uh, I was passing out this communion stuff, and my friend was helping me do it. And then in those days, we had the big goblet, you know. I mean, everybody would really drink the goblet. And you'd, sometimes if you were really sanitary, you'd dry it off with a little towel, and you'd pass it to the next person. We didn't have a towel. And so about 80 people, the goblet was full of grape juice all the way up to almost the brim when we started. And everybody just takes that little obligatory sip, you know. And so there's like over half of the goblet left when we were all done. My friend takes communion, takes his little obligatory sip, and it's my turn. And I feel the, the voice of the Lord talk to me, Barry, drink it all. Remember the story? Drink it all. This is a world-famous story. I thought, no way. Then again, sterner, stern, drink it all. I tilted my head back, and I chugged that grape juice, man. Grape juice was running down my ears, onto my shirt. My friend that was serving with me did one of these. His weirdo detector went off, and, and he got away from me. And then God spoke to me again and said, 
Barry, that cup is my love. I didn't know about, I wasn't really connected with the blood and the cup and everything. And I just converted, you know. He says, that cup is my love. Every time you get a chance, drink it all. Do you know what this means? It means sacrificial love. It means drink up the chances to experience God's wave after wave after wave of love. But drink up the chances to give your life away as well. Because it's sacrificial love we're talking about. I just am really in the last 10 years understanding what God said to me that day. Every time you get a chance, drink it all. Every time you get a chance, give your life away. Every time you get a chance, experience my love. Every time you're in creation, soak it up. It's me. Drink it all. And then I felt like the Lord added, because you're going to need it for where you go and what you do. I wasn't a pastor then. He was right. And I've run a love deficit for years at a time when I've forgotten the very message I'm giving you right now. Can't do it. Not if you're serious about this thing. It's just not going to work. We need this love to do what we do. Here's a third barrier to experiencing God's love. It's hard times. I think I'll stop here. Um, Here's the lie we believe when hard times come. If God really loved me, can you finish the sentence? He wouldn't let this happen. How do you think Penny felt last year? Or had the potential of feeling? If God really loved me, I would not, this would not have happened to me. So hard times can throw up a barrier between you and God. And sometimes you don't even know it. Here's three pieces of information I want you to know. And if it's review, I really do apologize. But here's the first piece of information. Trouble is part of the territory in life. You probably knew that in a fallen world. Trouble is an equal opportunity afflictor. Jesus said this like this. In the world, you will have trouble. I bet that's not up on your refrigerator. Oh, let me meditate on this verse. This is in my little Jesus promise pocketbook. In this world, you will have trouble. No, but he told us for a reason, because in this world, you will have trouble. Some of you are in the middle of it right now. How could God love you and this happen to you? How could God love your friends and then they get hooked on heroin and die? How can a God of love do that? Because in this world, you're going to have trouble. Jesus predicted it. You don't think he had trouble? He's not asking you to walk any place he hasn't walked, do anything he hasn't done. It's not the kind of God he is. He gets right in there with us. He says, identify with me, because part of identifying with me means suffering. You don't find it on your refrigerator. It's just the way it is. But take heart, he adds. I've overcome the world. If you're standing in God's love, so will you. 
That's why I admire people like Penny, who's gone, who've gone through what they've gone through, and I don't see any change in her spirit at all. How would you handle that? If you're soaking in the love of God, you'll do really well. You'll really, if you're marinating in the love of God, you'll do well when trouble comes. Now, you won't be jumping up and down and doing a jig, but you're not going to fold either. God's not singling you out for trouble because he doesn't love you. Jesus is saying, join me. Join me. This is where I live. And you're with me, and I'm with you. And I'll get you through this. Now, I didn't say God caused the trouble. I'm just saying we live in a broken world. And that's the second thing we need to remember. God sometimes uses trouble to make us better or build our faith. You don't really want to talk about this, do you? There are things you can't learn when things are going great that you can only learn when you're moving through pain. I mean, consider it pure joy, James says, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know, pure joy, come on. Because you know that testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. So God uses trouble. It's not because he doesn't love you. He might be using it, I mean, to do something else. Did he bring it? I don't think so. But it came because of where you live. Third thing we need to remember is that if, if, if we have a spiritual enemy, uh, that also wants to bring us trouble. In the book of Job, um, we get introduced to the Satan, and, and then in the New Testament, Jesus and Paul rip off the cover, and we see the blatant nature of satanic and demonic activity that's all around us. And if God has a, a wonderful plan for your life, the evil one has a terrible plan for your life, and he wants to carry it out, and you are in a war. It's right over your head. Trouble happens because of the war. We're at war. And it's naive not to think so. And it's naive to think you're going to escape scot-free. There's going to be stuff that happens. The enemy knows what buttons to push in you. Knows how to make you act out. Fourthly, my bad choices cause me trouble. Do I need to talk about this? In fact, I can say honestly that most of my trouble has come because I did it. I did it. My bad choices have caused me trouble. So all these things are part of the deal that, has nothing, that they have nothing to do with God's loving you or not loving you. It has to do with where you live, this reality that's all around you. And some tr- uh, trouble is in the category of I just don't understand. So I can't mark it down to the enemy. I can't mark it down to a fallen world. I can't mark it down to anything at all. It's just like, who knows? That's random. It's crazy. I, you'll never understand it. What you've got to decide to do in that case is say, do you still trust God even though you don't understand? Some people have said no. They've walked away. Remember what I talked about wounded theists, not atheists. 
Trouble came. They didn't understand why. It was senseless. It was random. Uh, uh, their baby girl was raped or some really stupid thing had happened and, and they didn't know what to do. And so the, all that they could do is lash out and the person they lashed out at was God. He's responsible. He did it. When we don't understand, do we still believe? Are you prepared to trust God so much that you will be naive enough to believe he's still good when random trouble comes your way? Big question. Let me give you what Job said just so you can reflect on it. Job had been asking, why me? If you've read the book, you know that. He kept asking that. Why me? I'm a good guy. I mean, look at all this stuff I've done. I'm a good guy. How can this happen? And um, God's reply to Job is really instructive. Here it is. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? God's kind of cheeky, isn't he? Job's going through all this suffering. He says, hey, big boy, where were you? And then he goes on, he continues along the same lines until Job surrenders with this statement, surely I spoke of things I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me to know. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. So therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Yeah, we can gauge where some trouble comes from. We can gauge where a hardship and some hard times come from. What we can't ever do is allow that to be a barrier between ourselves and God. You know, it's some, even the random stuff. You still trust God. You begin to love Him more. I know people that have gone through horrible things and begin to love God more. Uh, the, only, the only thing I can, I can say about it is, it's, it, about this whole thing, and I don't pretend to understand it all, particularly the senseless trouble that comes our way, the senseless trouble some of you are going through right now. But let me tell you a story about my son. I, he was two or three years of age, and we had one of those little gates that you put across the stairs so they don't go up there because they always defy gravity and come down real fast. You know about that? And so it had a little metal thing on the end of it where you attach it, you know, where it would lock in. And so Joe and I were wrestling right on the landing that went up the steps. We were messing, playing around, you know. And he fell, and he took, got his lip on that metal thing, and he just ripped it. Ripped it up. And he's bleeding and bleeding and screeching, you know. And I'm, oh, no. I feel bad enough, right? I did this to my son. It was an accident, of course. But I did it. I, I took all this responsibility on myself. But then I had to take him to the doctor. He's two or three years of age. We get to the doctor, and then I had to hold him down on the table while the doctor shoots that painkiller, that Novocaine, or whatever they put in the, the wound to deaden it so they can put stitches in. And I'm holding my son down on this table, and he's looking at me with these big brown eyes, and he's weeping. Like, Dad, what are you doing? What are you doing? He didn't say that. But you know it was going through his little brain in whatever way those little brains work. Now, afterwards I could have explained it all to him. Well, Joe, you know this was for your own good because we, we, I had to hold you down, let the doctor stick the needle in you and put those stitches in you and you were... Maybe, maybe God looks at our situation in, in that kind of a way, you know. Maybe if God explained your trouble, 
you wouldn't understand anyway. Maybe there's a purpose in what's happened. I don't know. I'm, I'm not making any big statements about, well, I understand it all. I don't. I have the same understanding my son had when I held him down on that table to get stitches. I knew that he'd have a horrible scar on his lip if I didn't get him those stitches. He had no idea of why. In fact, it's always better not to ask God why. Ask him what? What am I supposed to do now? How? Asking why is the most frustrating question I can imagine. And if you want to cut off the love of God, keep asking why. Keep doing it. You're going to be alienated from God. My assistant uh, pastor for many years had a, had a young brother die when, when you know, he was only 12 years of age. And he just died, and he shouldn't have died. It was weird. I mean, the, how it all happened. It was just unexplainable. One of these random things that we've been talking about. And, 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 and he was alienated from God in his faith, and he was about 16 years of age, and so he just went off from God, and he never really did understand. Then he became, uh, got into the ministry, became a pastor, but it was still a barrier between himself and God. And God spoke to him one day and said, John, you can keep hitting your head and knocking your head against this wall, or you can trust me and move on. Your choice. He chose to move on. Began to experience God's incredible love again. At the vineyard, by the way, in Southern California. So you can keep hitting your head up against this wall, wondering why God doesn't love you. Why did he let this happen in your life? Or you can say, I don't understand at all, but I trust you. I know that's hard medicine, especially for senseless evil that happens in our lives. But it's where we're left so often. Like Job, trouble comes into our lives we can't understand, and it just happens. So which of the barriers to God's furious love do you most relate to tonight? Is it perfectionism? You said, boy, Barry, that was so long ago, I don't remember what that was. Perfectionism, you remember. Are you suffering some kind of a father wound? That's what Gordon Dalby and others call this alienation from your human parents or your father or authority figure. Is that, is that kind of where you're at? Maybe it's trouble for you tonight that's created a barrier. 